The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. Very good lemon creams. The eggs are still warm and stuck with feathers as I count them from the basket. I pour grated sugar from the earthenware jar, then take a freshly wetted knife and pair the rind from two lemons. The world slips away. I feel my eye, my nose, my palate yielding. And I think how satisfying it is to scrape at a lemon, to lose myself in its sharp, bright song. I have started to see poetry in the strangest of things, from the roughest nub of nutmeg to the pale parsnip seamed with soil. And this has made me wonder if I can write a cookery book that includes the truth and beauty of poetry. Why should the culinary arts not include poetry? Why should a recipe book not be a thing of beauty? My thoughts come quickly and smoothly in the solitude of the kitchen. And as I beat the eggs, I find myself comparing the process of following a recipe to that of writing a poem. Fruit, herbs, spices, eggs, cream. These are my words, and I must combine them in such a way they produce something to delight the palate. Exactly as a poem should fall upon the ears of its readers, charming or moving them. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Annabel Abs is the author of The Joyce Girl and Frida, the original Lady Chatterley, along with several works of non-fiction, including The Agewell Project and her memoir, Windswept, Walking in the Footsteps of Remarkable Women. Today I'm talking to Annabel Abs about her new work of historical fiction, The Language of Food. Annabel, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me, Greg. The Language of Food is the story of Eliza Acton, and of all the many hundreds, if not thousands, of cookbooks by British chefs, cooks and authors, her book, Modern Cookery, in all its branches, reduced to a system of easy practice for the use of private families, to give its full title, has been called the greatest British cookbook of all time. What is it about that book that has earned it so much admiration? Well, there are there are many things about it that make it special, really, and I suppose the first most obvious one is that Eliza Acton uh, invented the recipe as we know it. So if you look at an old cookery book before Eliza Acton, they're they're very, very hard to read. They're written by professional cooks or housekeepers for other professional cooks or housekeepers, most of whom would have known the recipes already. Um, So they tend to read, you know, take 25 eggs, mix in three pounds of flour, add this, Uh, take away that, beat in this. There's no list of ingredients, basically, and there's no information on how long a dish should be cooked for or at what temperature. So Eliza Acton is writing for a completely new market. She's writing for the newly emerged middle-class woman who has probably not not come from, has definitely not come from a wealthy background, but is suddenly possibly married to a merchant and is needing to tell her cook 
what sort of dishes she would like so she's much more she's much more involved but also she doesn't know very she doesn't know very much and also we've got this glut of new ingredients that have arrived suddenly you can buy cinnamon and spice and lemons and lots of people don't know what these ingredients are so the first thing Eliza Acton does is she takes out the ingredients and she puts them in a list she puts them in a list at the bottom of her recipe of course now we're all used to having them at the top so that was her first innovation, really, to list the ingredients at the bottom uh, in, in very precise measurements as well. Instead of, you know, putting a handful of this or throwing a, a bowl of that, she will measure every ingredient and, and say, you know, uh, a half a pound or, or three pounds or whatever. Uh, and she also includes details on how long it should cook for and what temperature the fire should be. So we have to remember that she's cooking in a, a very old fashioned range, which is basically basically over a fire. So she, of course, she's not giving she's not giving gas or electricity, but she is working out the temperature of that fire. And then she has her words that she uses for it. So it's a gentle fire, which means it's a low temperature or it's a brisk fire, which means, you know, it's a, it's a raging, a raging flame. Uh, so that's her that's her very first innovation is to create the recipe. Her second innovation is to create recipes that, you know, you or I can actually cook from because the sizes are the sizes are sensible. So before her, people were generally cooking enormous quantities. Either families were huge, you know, 10 children, or these are aristocratic homes with, you know, hundreds of hundreds of members of the family and hundreds of guests. So the recipes are all enormous. So what Eliza does is she scales all those recipes right down so that you're producing a meal that will feed, you know, six or actually some of hers are slightly larger, seven, eight, nine, ten. But the third thing she does, which was particularly important to me really was that she writes very beautifully for the first time you can read a recipe and you can literally drool you can think as, as we're used to now with cookbooks you know you open a cookbook and you think oh I really want to make that you have to remember she had no pictures so there's none of those glossy color photographs that inspire us but her language is beautiful and again before that people people who wrote cookbooks were cooks uh, often not highly educated often not very educated at all really but she is highly educated. She has run a school. She has been a governess, uh, and also she has been a poet. So the two skills there are one, she can write because she's written uh, poetry that she's published and sold. And the second one is that she knows how to teach. So her recipes are exercises in handholding. Really, she takes the 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 newly married, you know, twenty one year old housewife who is suddenly expected to produce meals for an aspiring merchant husband. And she walks her through a recipe. This is the sort of thing you might want to cook and she makes it sound delicious. And then she hand holds you all the way through telling you everything you need to know to produce the perfect, the perfect meal. Now, when I think of the cuisine of Victorian England, I, I imagine great slabs of mutton and mountains of outrageously wobbling jelly, but that's not the impression I got from your book. What did Eliza Acton bring to British cuisine? Well, she's just before jelly, thank goodness, because if you look at the cookbooks that come a bit later, they're full of everything's in aspic and, and jelly becomes very popular. So she's writing before the arrival of jelly. So that's one good thing. Uh, it is very meaty. There's a lot of meat because, again, you know, your uh, aspiring housewife would be expected to serve meat at least once a day, certainly when her husband came home you know he would expect a nice haunch of something so it is quite meaty and and you know we ate a lot of meat then but the other thing that earmarks her really is that she had spent time in France and Italy 
We don't really know what she was doing there. It's it's expected, it's it sort of supposed, assumed really that she was uh, either a, a lady's companion or that she was in a sort of governess role. So she had exposure to uh, continental food that again, many of her peers wouldn't have had because people didn't travel. People didn't really travel that much unless you were very wealthy. So she had, um, all these ideas about French food and Italian food that she'd picked up. I think about it a lot. What was she doing? Was she in the kitchens? Because she seems to know an awful lot about how the French prepared meats, how they cooked soups, how they, how they roasted meats, how they uh, served up stews. She has all this knowledge, which again, she shares in her book. If we can turn for a moment from the fact to the fiction that you've imagined and created around Eliza Acton, the first thing is that two points of view drive the narrative in this book, Eliza herself, of course, but then you introduce the character of Anne Kirby. What does Anne bring to the story that Eliza couldn't? The fact is that she worked with a woman called Anne Kirby for 10 years. So I had, I had that fact and they cooked in the same kitchen in the same house. And, and the other historical facts I had just just a more general really were that staff never stayed 10 years you know the average length of time that a servant spent with a with a household was one year and and often it was much much faster you know they stay for it's a bit like the catering industry now you know they could stay for a couple of months and then go somewhere to to get a, a bit of a pay rise so that that 10 years of cooking together uh really really struck me I was like you know what how, how did that work uh, in this in this kitchen, kitchens were always smoky and smelly and dark and sooty, you know, and there they are together. And all the way through Eliza's cookbook, she talks about we all the way time, all the way. She It's always, we tried this, we recommend this, we wouldn't do it like this. So she's certainly with someone and, and it appears to be Anne Kirby. So I sort of took that. And then there were lots of other things that I wanted to discover and sort of explore. And I didn't have any data there's no data on Anne Kirby at all other than she was working with Eliza for 10 years and and we know where she went afterwards she went to work for the, a sort of a man a pharmacist really in a hospital and again that was slightly odd because a woman with 10 years of cooking experience would have been able to get a much better job than that she would have gone on and been a, a chef or a cook so that was the other slight mystery you know why why did she not become a cook why did she just become a servant but the rest was really open. And that was quite nice for me because I thought, oh, OK, I've got no facts. There's no poetry. There's no there's nothing. She's left nothing, not a single letter. You know, we know nothing about her. So I used her really to um, try and, I guess, to try and paint a fuller picture of that period in history, which was a time of immense poverty. I mean, the, the poverty was just absolutely horrendous. We'd sort of come out of the Napoleonic Wars, which had been going on for about 30 years. and uh, the level of deprivation was, today we can barely imagine it. There's absolutely no support network. I can try and show a fuller picture of the time. So it's not just this sort of middle-class woman writing a cookbook. You know, there's this immense poverty all around her. And I was quite interested in, in the relationship. You know, what was it like to be the, the woman that had all the lemons and the cinnamon and be able to have all those wonderful ingredients? What was it like then to work with someone who had nothing and was living off a, you know, a few a few oats or you know a slice of bread every day and one of the really lovely aspects of this story is the way the story advances I guess through a series of recipes or at least references to recipes and between Anne and Eliza a series of experiences with food and beverages kind of advance the plot and I guess fill out the characters but most importantly and from what I could see they 
bring a real warmth to the actors in this story. I'm glad you think so. Well, one of the one of the ways I did my research, which I which I've never done before because it's never been necessary with any other book, was I sort of researched through cooking. You know, so I did all the usual, you know, archival searching and reading of biographies and, you know, all the, the book and library research. But then I thought, you know what, I I really I need to cook my way into Eliza and Anne. So I started working my way through modern cookery, which, uh, as you may know, is huge. It's 600 pages uh, with, you know, sometimes two or three recipes on a page. And I've got a daughter who's a vegetarian. So um, so there were a few challenges, but I used the recipes to try and understand how Eliza and Anne would have worked together in that dark, sooty little kitchen. And also to try and understand the sorts of the sorts of flavours that were new new to them. And it's quite a fascinating process because things that we take absolutely for granted, like lemons, Eliza is a very is very fond of lemons. I'm not quite sure where she gets all her lemons, but she often seems to have a lemon to hand. <laughs> and you know, lemons were so new and exciting and and luxury. And yet, you know, we just I just squeeze a bit of lemon into a glass of water, like it's just, you know, here's a lemon, yeah, I'll just put it in my water. But for them, uh, a lemon would have completely changed, say, a basic a basic Victoria sponge or a sponge cake, a Madeira cake. You know, to suddenly have lemon zest, that takes a fairly plain cake to a completely new level. And also I was really intrigued by how ingredients have really changed. So when they cook with currants, you know, we just open a bag of currants and, you know, currants are little tiny raisins. We just open the bag and tip them in. But Eliza and Anne had to take out all the stones and take off we you know, cut off with a knife or little scissors um the you know the, the stalks so just to make a cake that would take us maybe 20 minutes would probably have taken them about two hours and that's before they even push it over the you know into the fire so the whole process of cooking was uh was much more laborious and also exhausting and that was important for me to understand so I said I said to myself you can't use your kitchen aid no you can't use your magic mix you know you're going to do this by hand and you know the beat the endless beating and creaming when you do it by hand uh, not only does it take forever but it is really really tiring well one thing is indisputable and that's the recipes and as a final question to you I'd like to talk about a particular recipe apparently included in Acton's Modern Cookery, and that's for Brussels sprouts. So what did Eliza Acton do for this much maligned vegetable? I, I have cooked and eaten her Brussels sprout recipe on several occasions because it's, it's very simple and it's actually really delicious. It's Brussels sprouts on toast. So, <laughs> yes, can you believe it? She puts quite a lot of things on toast. One of her other recipes that she puts on toast that I use in, in the novel is celery on toast. And I would urge everyone to try it because she celery on toast is delicious. It's not raw celery. You know, she, she cooks it first. And so with the Brussels sprouts on toast, she does one thing that's slightly uh, unusual. She, she toasts her bread and then she butters it on both sides. She's very keen on butter. Then she puts her Brussels sprouts uh, on top. She boils them. I think I steamed mine, but you can do either. And then she puts more melted butter on. So basically it's just toast, Brussels sprouts and a lot of melted butter. And it's delicious. It sounds remarkable. It, it may have even changed my mind about Brussels sprouts. <laughs> yeah. um, and of course, good books do change minds and your book did exactly that for me. And so I thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. It's been a pleasure. 
I've been talking to Annabelle Abbs about her new book, The Language of Food. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.